Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. Good to see you. Let's, um, hopefully you got a handout. If, uh, if not, that's okay, too. Some of you are handout people. Some of you aren't. So that's fine. Let me go ahead and pray, and we'll get started. God, we are thankful for this day, and we are thankful um, that we know you, the living God. We pray that we would uh, worship you with uh, fear and trembling and uh, joy this morning, and even as we hear from your word, that we would receive it humbly, and that you would do your work through your word by your spirit in our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So you can turn to Leviticus 16. So Leviticus 16, uh, just by way of reminder, the main theme of Leviticus, I think, is really God opening a way for his people. So God opening a way for his people to be in his place, dwelling before his presence. Um, that's a pretty big deal. As we, I'm not going to belabor this point because we talked about it a couple times, but it is a big deal um, because uh, what, well, let me just say this. You might think the main theme of Leviticus is holiness, and that's true. It is. But really the main theme is how can an unclean and sinful people live in the presence of the holy God? And so, yes, they have to be cleansed and they have to be holy, set apart. That's true. So God's holiness and the people's holiness, that really is a main theme. That it, but I would say the main theme is how God's people can dwell in his presence, right? And so that's what we've been seeing in Leviticus. Now, let's begin by just reviewing here real quick previously on Leviticus, right? What has happened previously in the storyline here? So after the um, the laws, so one through seven, we had laws about sacrifice. You guys remember that? Um, it's been, that was kind of several weeks ago, but there's a bunch of laws all about sacrifices. So we started with that, and this is a major movement towards the people being able to be before God. Right, the tabernacle represents where God's perfect place is. Uh, he's dwelling in a special way among his people, and yet they have to be cleansed somehow. And so we see that they, uh, they're able to make a sacrifice that is accepted. A after this whole thing about um, the, what sacrifices need to happen and then consecrating the priest, because they need someone who can represent them before God, they can't just walk in there like it's no big deal. Right? And so then in, on your handout, you have um, part of chapter 9, um, I'm going to read a couple extra verses here. Back in verse 24, it says, Then Aaron lifted up his hands, so that's the high priest, lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them, and came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offering. So he's made offerings that were prescribed in the first seven chapters, and he is the priest that's been anointed. So this is kind of a culmination of all the first section of Leviticus, right? Uh, and verse 23, Moses and Aaron went, went into the tent of meeting. That's a big deal. At the beginning of Leviticus, they could not enter the tent, or actually at the end of Exodus. Uh, God's glory is on the tent. That's wonderful. It's amazing, but we have a problem. They can't enter the tent, right? So here they're able to enter. So this is incredible. Um, and it says, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. I mean, could you imagine how amazing that would be, right? The glory of the Lord appears to all the people. And, and verse 24, fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. This is a high point in Leviticus. This is amazing, right? We, we are seeing God told us to do these things. We are doing what God said. And we are able, even as a people who have been sinful and unclean, to, through sacrifice, through a priest, draw near to God. To, to worship God, to see God, something of God's glory, and not be consumed and die. Right? And I think we forget that, right? We think we, we just come to worship. How was church? Well, it was okay. You know, the preacher's message was okay. Music was okay. And it's like, I mean, you should be like, man, we got to worship God and we didn't die. 
I mean, that's because God's holy, right? So, um, so they do that. But then in chapter 10, verses 1 through 3, I mean, it doesn't take long. We have a major disaster occur, right? So in verses 1 through 3, now Nadab and Abihu, this is of chapter 10, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, so these are also priests, they each took their censer of fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. Up until this point, it's always been, and they did as the Lord commanded. They did as the Lord commanded. Now we have unauthorized. Red lights are flashing, right? We have a problem. What happens? Uh, they offered unauthorized fire for the Lord, which he had not commanded them. Verse two, and fire came out. Okay, so we just saw fire coming out a second ago and there was much rejoicing. But now they've done what's unauthorized. What's gonna happen? Fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who draw near me, I will be sanctified and before all the people, I will be glorified. God is holy. So yes, they could draw near to him, but it's on his terms. And when they don't do it on his terms, we have a problem, right? Um, so God is holy. The unclean cannot come into contact with the holy and live. So the, the priest then, so then what happens in the, in the next section is going to be what we see in Leviticus 10.10. You are to distinguish, so the priest, you are to distinguish between the holy and the common. So that which is completely set apart to God and holy and then common like just the everyday stuff. You're to distinguish between that and you're to distinguish between the unclean and the clean. So so you, when you're reading this, you might think chapters 11 through 15, all this clean and unclean stuff, that actually fits the context. What just happened? We had the profane trying to come into the holy, the unclean trying to be brought before God rather than the clean. And so what happens? God doesn't receive the offering. He consumes them. So do you see, we have a, the whole thing is there's a crisis moment here where we're like, how are we going to keep dwelling before the holy God? We, either we need to get out of here or we need to figure out how we can come near him and not die. And, and so 11 through 15, as mundane as that seems to us, because we don't live under that old covenant where we have to actually abide by all the, un, the cleanliness laws, they fit the context. The, the, chapter 10, verse 10, the priests have to be able to discern between these things so that they do not die, that they can draw near to God. Um, Leviticus 15.31, Thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. Yes, God is among his people. That's a wondrous thing. He is holy. If they, don't, if they are not cleansed, they will die before him. Holiness will consume unholiness. So they need to be cleansed and they need to be separate. Leviticus 16.30, this is the chapter we're going to look at today. Um... We're going to learn about the day of atonement and we're going to see for on this day shall atonement be made for you to what? To cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. So that's how these pieces fit together. That's what's going on in Leviticus chapter one, all the way through um, chapter 16. Um, And and what we find is this is going to talk a lot about um, atonement. The word atone or atonement is going to appear at least 15 times in this one chapter. Um, so what we, what we mean when we talk about atonement is the idea of making at one, bringing about unity through, the, through a sacrifice ultimately. Um, uh, atonement means covering, a covering, a propitiation, a satisfaction of wrath uh, that will enable the people to be covered by this, this sacrifice, by the blood, right? So that they can enter before God. I mean, really only the high priest can go all the way into the Holy of Holies, but that they can live among God's presence and not die, Okay. Um, 
So that's what we mean when we talk about atonement. All right, so any questions about the setting before we go on, or before uh, the background before we go into the setting here? We jump into chapter 16. Clear as mud? We're good? Okay. Leviticus 16, verses 1 through 2. We're going to see the setting here. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron. So again, what's the context? This seems to be even maybe the same day that Aaron's sons died. So you see there's a connection here. Don't, don't get lost in 11 through 15. Those are important, but it's, it's all still the same context. Um, when they drew near the Lord before the Lord and died, verse 2, And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark. Why? So that he may not die. Why might he die? For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. Okay, so just as a reminder, where's the mercy seat at in the temple? Or the, where in the tabernacle at this point, eventually it'll be a temple, but where are they at? Where's it at? In the Holy of Holies, right? Which is, we're, all we're saying is the holiest place, right? So that represents the very throne room of God. Uh, the mercy seat is referred to in other places as God's footstool, a footstool like at his throne. In other words, this is just the footstool of God's throne. Now again, I've said this over and over again, but just to be clear, the people do not actually think that this is like God is confined here like the Roman, I mean obviously Roman gods aren't existing at this point, but like you know, the way we would think of the Roman gods, they all have their own little pantheon and they just kind of dwell there or they're up, they can't be everywhere. That's not their understanding. They know God is everywhere. Solomon makes that clear when he talks about the temple being dedicated. The highest of heavens can't contain you. Heaven is your throne, right? But there's a special way God is, because he's covenanted, he's promised, I will dwell among you in a special blessing way. Right? Um, and so that, that, this is the place where God is dwelling in a special way among his people. This is the very throne room. We've talked about the, um, the kind of Eden-type language that gets used. Right? The, this tabernacle is in, in some sense, very, very uh, symbolic and yet also kind of real sense, a new Eden that the people can see where God is, is, is at. And then if you keep tracking that through the storyline, you end up with the new heavens and new earth, which is also described very similar to language of the Garden of Eden, right? So God's perfect, God's people in God's place under God's perfect rule. That's what we're, that's what the whole storyline of the Bible is doing. Okay, so um, <clears throat> they're, they're um, so, so still connected to that. God's going to appear before at the mercy seat. So we don't want him to die. So he's saying, hey, don't just walk in here like your sons did. And so the rest of chapter 16 is, how are we going to deal with this problem so that the priest can enter the Holy of Holies? The people can dwell and not be consumed. That, that's the whole, what we're trying to answer in chapter 16. Um, and um, yeah, so this is, this is a pretty big deal, right? How can the people and how can the priest enter before God and not be consumed? So let's talk about the introduction to the Day of Atonement here, verses 3 through 10. And let's, we're going to see the basic requirements of the ceremony. So that, this is kind of a, um, well, we're going to get an overview in a second in 6 through 10. But in 3 through 5, we're just going to kind of get some basic requirements. Like what, what do you need to have and bring and do just generally. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body and he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on and he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Okay, so we have um, multiple 
um, animals that are going to need to be sacrificed. We have a bull. And the bull is for who? Who's it going to make atonement for? Aaron. So the high priest and, and his, his household. So this is atonement for the priests. Um, so that they will be cleansed before God, right? Um, then we, uh, we have some goats. And the goats are going to be for who? The people, right? The goats are going to be for the people. Um, we also have a ram that's going to be involved as a burnt offering. Okay, the clothes for the high priest. Um, uh, some commentators pointed this out, and so I didn't really research it a ton. So if you have more insight on it, feel free to correct me later. But my understanding is that this is not his typical, um, really fancy priestly garb that he would wear. Um, it's just described as linen. Now it is holy. There's something unique about it. But Gordon Wenham points out that uh, his understanding is this, this probably shows that when the priest is entering before God, he's going to go into the Holy of Holies. He's coming more like a servant before God, right? In other words, his clothes are showing, there's a cleanness about them. That, that's one thing it's showing. But it, it's, it's not the same kind of high priestly garments that he wears among the people to, to show the people like, hey, your God is great. You know, he's a king that, you know, his servants have to look like they belong to the great king. When you go before the great king, you're like, I'm just a servant. Okay? So that's what Gordon Wenham points out. I think it's helpful. Um, like I said, I didn't go real in-depth on that, but I thought it was interesting, so I thought I'd point it out. Outline of the ceremony, 6 through 10. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Verse 7, then he shall take two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats. So it's kind of like um, drawing straws, rolling dice, some way to determine which goat is going to be which um, one lot is for the Lord and the other for the lot of Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. So that's kind of the way the bull is going to be used. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it that it may be sent away into the wilderness of Azazel. So um, basically Aaron offers a bull for purification for himself and for the priests. Aaron will then cast lots. So I'm kind of giving you the order of what's going to happen. Aaron will then cast lots. He'll come back out, cast lots over these two goats. One goat will be, we're going to learn about this later. So you have questions about Azazel. I do too. Um, so don't think I'm going to answer all your questions about it. But what's clear is very clear about what's going to happen with this goat. Point is we have one goat for that. One goat's going to be a burnt offering or sin offering. I think it's a sin offering. I can't remember. Um, so, cast lots. Then that uh, the goat uh, that is for the Lord, that's going to be the, the sin offering, is um, sacrificed. Then the other goat is going to be sent out into the wilderness. That's kind of the order of the way things are going to flow in the following verses. So we have purification. We have a scapegoat, which we're going to learn more about in a second. We have these burnt offerings, um, which are also referred to as ascension offerings. And um, we'll see all that unfolding in these next verses. So that brings us to the next section. The cleansing of the priest, the people, and the place. So these are the sin offerings that are going to take place. Okay, so now what we're doing is we're zooming in. We had a big picture just now. We're going to zoom in, okay? Let's look at verses 11 and following. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a, as a sin offering for himself and he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small and he shall bring it inside the veil. Okay, uh, well, let me keep reading. And put the incense on the 
on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so that he does not die. That gets repeated, right? He does not die. Okay, wh- so where's this uh, offering being taken? Where's the, some of the blood of this offering going to be taken? The Holy of Holies, right? And we know that because it talks about the mercy seat. Where's the mercy seat? It's in the Holy of Holies, right? So he's going to go into the Holy of Holies with this. Um, And he has to bring this incense so that he does not die. Um, Probably, uh, so you'll remember like we have uh, the pillar of cloud and other things representing God's presence. So that's part of, I think, what this uh, cloud is going to represent. He dwells among the clouds, right? He is high and lofty. Um, There's also a protective element for Aaron, lest he would look and see something of the Lord that he ought not see and be struck dead because of the holiness of God. Um, So, I mean, this is a very serious thing that's taking place and very much in contrast to what his sons did. They unauthorized fire and died and God's saying, Aaron, you're going to come in, right? But so that you do not die, this is what you need to do. So again, I mean, it's always, God is holy. We have to take him seriously. Um, Okay, so... Then we see the purification of the people. Look at verse 15, just the beginning. I know I'm skipping 14. I'm going to come back to that in a second. So then he, Aaron, shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people. So he's going to do the same thing with this goat for the people. And he's going to bring, we're going to see that he's going to bring blood again into the holiest of holies. Um, you know, in some ways, this is similar to what has happened with the, um, when they were anointed, when the priest was anointed back in chapter four, we have a similar offering being given. But there, and you probably won't remember this because I didn't remember this either. And I mean, I've been studying it and you guys probably hadn't recently, but they only go up to the curtain and that blood gets sprinkled in that area right out in front of the holiest of holies. Now this goes, so once a year, we're going to go all the way into the holy of holies and sprinkle blood over the mercy seat, right? Which is probably a couple things going on. One is that's where God is going to give forgiveness, right? I mean, before his mercy seat, Right? He's going to show mercy. Um, th- there's also the idea of cleansing. The place needs to be cleansed because the people's sins have continued to be brought up to this tabernacle, right? And, and blood is, so there needs to be a cleansing of even the stuff, which is what we see in verses 14 through 19, a purification of the place. So um, look at verses 14 and following. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. And in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Now, just real quick, I don't know if there's anything super significant about east side, except for when Adam and Eve are sent out of the garden, which direction are they sent? They're sent east, right? So it's probably somewhat symbolic, I would, I would think, that through this, re-entrance is being gained into the presence of God. Adam, remember there were flaming cherub outside the garden? So they're sent east. You can't come back in from the west side where you were sent east. Uh, the commentators seem to think that the, the priest was probably standing on the west side of this and sprinkling it on the east side of the, the thing. Um, some of that's a little speculation, but I think it's at least worth noting. It does say east side. So why say that? I think it has to do with this idea of Adam and Eve are exiled. The only way back is through sacrifice and through God opening up this way. Right. It is interesting too. Remember on the the veil, we have cherubim. I'm pretty sure on that veil, right? You have cherub over the footstool. So again, what's guarding the 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 garden? The cherubim, right? In other words, these aren't just like your little baby angels. I mean, we're talking like they've got swords of flaming fire. Like you're not getting in, right? Okay. Um. So where did I leave off at? Something about the east side. Does anyone know what verse that was? You said 15. Good. 14? 
You guys want to arm wrestle to decide which one it is? And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger in front of the mercy seat on the east side. And in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat for the sin offering, that is for the people, and bring its blood inside of the veil. So again, he's going inside the veil. And do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. So even the place has to be cleansed. That's my point. The people have to be cleansed, the priests have to be cleansed, and the place has to be cleansed because the place is right there in the middle of the unclean people. Right? So it starts to give you better insight when you start reading in the book of Revelation, you're talking about God's holy place and who's going to be kept out of this holy place, right? There is a distinction that is made. And so, so among God's people, there, there will be holiness. So the blood is sprinkled there. Uh, cleansing is, is given. Uncleanness is removed. What is the main purpose then? Uh, verse 16, I think, is the main purpose. Thus, and I already read this, but thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions. So, this has to happen if people are going to enter before him. That's not all that's going to happen, though. So, we have to come back to this goat, right? Our special goat friend who is offered to Azazel. We have to figure out our is for Azazel, not offered to Azazel. We have to see what this means. Uh, I'm going to take you back a couple verses, though. Verses 7 through 8. First time we see the goat here mentioned. Then he shall take two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, and uh, one lot for the Lord and the other for Azazel. So he's chosen by lot. The word Azazel, here's where I said I'm, I, I, there's only so much I can do to help you here because I don't really know. Um, we don't know exactly what this word means for sure. There's a bunch of different guesses out there. Um, but here's the point. Oh, well, okay, so here's the point. The point is not hard to figure out. Okay, the point of this goat is he's going to be taken into the wilderness and, um, and cut off, we're told. Right? He's brought to this land of where he has cut off the wilderness. Um, and so, um, have I read this section to you yet? Where have I read so far? Okay, let me, I, this is probably a little confusing to you because I haven't read verses 20 through 22. Let me do that real quick. Um, but what we're going to see is it's a removal of the guilt of sin. Look at verses 20 through 22. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. So this is the, the, the Azazel goat. And Aaron shall lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess uh, over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. You get the picture, right? He's confessing all their sin, not just a little bit of it, Right? And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all the iniquities on himself into a remote place. In other words, he's cut off and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. So we have this, um, I, I guess what I'm saying is the point is clear when you read that. What is happening is very clear. The sin is transferred to this blameless, spotless goat, right? And then the goat is cut off and taken into the wilderness, Right? And he, what does he do? He bears the sins of the people away. Right? Um, <clears throat> so he's going to take that out there. Um, when we think of uh, wilderness, um, this is the idea of a remote place or being cut off. So again, we're, we're kind of taken back to Garden of Eden imagery, right? We, we have this garden, this beautiful place. When Adam and Eve sin, they get kicked out of it into a wilderness. 
So what we're saying here is sin is not going to dwell in God's perfect place. And by the way, there are a lot of people who want to go to God's perfect place. I think most people, if you talk to them, I mean, there are probably some who are just that hard-hearted, but they want to go to a great place when they die, right? But they don't want God's perfect place because they don't want God to rule over it. You see what I'm saying? So they're not going to have God's perfect place because the perfect place they want is actually not a perfect place. It's a place where they're God, and that will not be a perfect place. Um, and so this goat is cut off. He's removed to this uh, area, kind of like Adam and Eve are sent out of the garden. So in some sense, it's almost like a removal, right? To, to, it's like being sent out into hell. It, it's being cast away. So we have, so bottom line, we have two goats representing the people. One of them is sacrificed in their place and the blood is then used to cover, to make atonement for them. In other words, you deserve death. Someone has to die in your place. The other picture, and I think these are complementary pictures, right? The other picture is your sin needs to be carried away from you as far as the east is from the west type stuff. Your sin has to be removed. And again, that's going to have to be by another who is spotless and blameless. Lest you die. That's kind of what we have going on, right? So the, the, let's go on to verses 23 through 28. The cleansed people and the priest can now draw near to God. And the reason, by the way, the reason we're going through this fast is because I want to I read every verse in this chapter and I would like to, if we have time, look at Hebrews, right? Because we need to see uh, how this gets fulfilled down the road. Verses 23 and following. Then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and shall take off the linen garments that he put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there and he shall bathe his body in water in a holy place and put on his garments and come out and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people to make atonement for himself and for the people. Okay, so what's happening here is there's a cleansing. He has to ritually wash himself because he's been around basically sin and death. And remember, sin and death cannot enter into God's perfect place. That was one of the reasons the cleanliness laws were such a big deal, right? Uncleanness represents the realm of the dead. And in God's perfect place, there is no, we're not going to have death. So we have to remove that. So he puts back on his normal priestly garb. And now, because of what's been done, they can now offer a burnt offering and kind of go back to a relationship with God. The burnt offering, is, it signifies an aspiration to ascend to God. That's what it is. You have this spotless one. I want to be like that spotless one. And as he's burned up, his, the smoke rises heavenward. I want, to, I want to be able to enter into God's holy of holies, the true holy of holies. Verse 25, In the fat of the sin offering, he shall burn on the altar. And he who lets the goat go to Azazel shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. And afterward, he may come to the, into the camp. So he's got to be cleansed as well. Verse 27, And the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement for the holy place. So that, that happened earlier when they went into the holy of holies with the blood. That blood, the extra blood, shall be carried outside the camp. The skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire. And he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. And afterward, he may come into the camp. So some of this blood also is taken outside the camp, right? Um, where was Jesus crucified? Outside of Jerusalem, right? So again, I think we have a pointer to what's going to happen uh, with in the future. Um, Let's talk about this uh, burnt offering. So this, um, this represents, uh, Morales refers to it as an ascension offering. And again, I think he's right. I think the idea is there's this um, rising heavenward to God's place is the desire. Um, they need to be atoned for. They need to be made clean. Um, so we, we want to note that holiness is one of the main themes, like we said earlier. But it's not just holiness for the sake of like feeling good about yourself. 
The reason holiness is such a big deal is so that the people can be near God. So this is kind of an application, but in your struggle against sin and your desire to look holy, remember you are holy, right? You are set apart. By the merits of Jesus, you are. You are not going to work and earn that. But listen, if, you're, if you want Jesus to be your salvation, that means you want to look like Jesus and you want holiness, right? So, so someone, is, someone is not a Christian if they tell you that they, they want to go to heaven, but they have no desire to look like Jesus, right? I have no desire to look like Jesus. I have no desire for holiness. Now, do Christians, I mean, there are moments where Christians struggle with that, right? But I'm talking about we're not settled in that. And so there's a desire to be, so when you talk about holiness and your struggle for holiness, remember your desire, and this will help you in your fight for holiness, is God, I want to be with you. I want to be like my Savior. I want to see you in your perfect place. That's what motivates us in our fight against sin, right? It's, it's not just an abstract, like, well, I guess I got to be holy, it's like, I want to be in your place. And that's what this burnt offering is reminding us. The whole goal of all this is a restored relationship with God. You are the best person in the universe. I want to be in your perfect place with you, enjoying your presence, enjoying your people, right? Enjoying this new heavens and new earth that you create for all eternity. And so that's got to be our desire. So in our daily experience, that, that should motivate us. We should get a bigger picture of God. We should think more about who he is, and that will motivate us in our fight against sin as we think about his greatness. Now, these washings occur, I already mentioned that. They have to be washed from their uncleanness. So, that is the Day of Atonement. Um, that is, that, that's the worship service for the Day of Atonement. That's what they're going to do, right? Um, now, we have to point out one more thing, though. They also, at the end of this chapter, they get a save the date, right? You know, you get save the dates for weddings and stuff. They get a save the date for this every year. There, so what, we're, what, what are we seeing? There's a recurring need for cleansing and atonement. This is not a one-time deal for the people of Israel. So look at verses 29 and following. And it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and do no work either to the native, sorry, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. Okay, so who's he talking to here now? Is it the priest? It's the people, right? For on this day, shall atonement be made to, for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord of, from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar, and he shall make atonement for the priest, for all the people of the assembly." And, he, and this shall be a statute forever to you that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all your sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. So this ends well, right? Instead of a, they offered unauthorized fire which the Lord did not command it and he struck them dead. We have Aaron doing what the Lord commands. So that's good. Now there's a timing here. They have to do this every year, right? Every year this worship service is gonna have to happen. This Day of Atonement is going to happen. Um, it is around October-ish. Um, their calendar is a little different than ours, but it's around October-ish, so probably just recently. I think Charlie mentioned that. Um, so every year, and we see that. It's uh, verse 29, verse 31, verse 34. They all emphasize this is going to happen over and over again. It says to afflict yourselves. 
Um, that's the, the word there really is pointing to humble yourselves before God. It's pointing towards the idea. Afflicting could be a form of fasting, which if you think about it is, is it, what are you doing when you fast? There's a humbling of yourself before the Lord, right? So they are um, to, to humble themselves, to fast, self-examination, confession, prayer. So it's important to realize that the Day of Atonement is not like putting money in a vending machine. It was maybe a bad analogy because you probably put money in a vending machine and not gotten stuff to fall out. But let's just assume this is a perfect world and it drops the stuff out. Or genie in a bottle type thing. Let's go, that's, that's a better illustration. This is not a rub the lamp, get what you want, like, and you don't even, there has, there's no, nothing going on inside of you. It's just, if you mouth the words, it happens. Right? They have to afflict themselves. They have to recognize it as a Sabbath. In other words, what they're saying is, God, we really believe what you say about this. I really believe there's, God, you are in your holy place. I really believe you're the best person in the universe. I really believe you're holy, and I really want to be with you. That's faith, right? They have to, by faith, do this. And so afflicting themselves is a way of showing that. Um, it's not just the priests. It's all the people. It's a Sabbath. No normal work is to be done. This is a special day to worship the Lord. Okay, so that is the Day of Atonement. <clears throat> As we, we're going to start to bring this to a conclusion, but don't think we're like almost done yet. We still probably have like 10 more minutes, so don't wrap it up yet. I want you to turn to Hebrews 9. Um, I want to point out as we start to wrap this up, this is the center, or you might say the pinnacle of the Pentateuch. So Pentateuch is the first five books of the Bible. This is the foundational old covenant, right? The foundation of Israel and the covenant God makes is the first five books of the Bible written by Moses, Right? Um, so this is central to the Pentateuch, and um, so there are, so how, how many books are in the Pentateuch? Penta, there are five, okay, so what is the middle book of the Pentateuch? Leviticus, okay, so I gave you on your handout, this is not original to me, I shamelessly stole this, um, I don't remember from who, but anyway, uh, Genesis uh, so you can see it working inward to the middle. You see how it stair steps kind of down and then back out. Leviticus is the middle of the Pentateuch. You go from this Genesis separation of the nations and blessing and land and descendants. If you were to trace that to Deuteronomy, which parallels Genesis, you have a separation from the nations, blessing, land, descendants. Exodus, you have Israel wandering in the desert. Numbers, you have Israel again, desert journeys. Leviticus is at the center. It is the oddball out. It is the middle. This is pretty common in Hebrew writing. Um, to, to have this, it's a chiasm structure, and to place at the center your most important point. That's all we're saying. Um, even if you, if, you, if you didn't think that literary structure was there, I think just by seeing the themes in each of these, you see Leviticus again is kind of the oddball out. It's telling you, how do you draw near to this God? Among that, even within that, Leviticus 16 is recognized as the center of the book of Leviticus. Again, you see a chiasm. You have sacrifices on the outsides. You have uh, institution of the priesthood and legislation regarding the priesthood on the next steps in. You have cleanliness and uncleanliness, holy and profane. Remember, those are the categories we talked about. And then dead center of all of that, you have Leviticus 16. So Leviticus 16 is the center of the Pentateuch and it's the center of the book of Leviticus. It is the heart of what the old covenant is about. How can the holy God have an unholy people who are going to be able to dwell in his presence and enjoy his presence? And the answer is they have to be made holy through atonement. Right? They have to have a substitute who will take their place. So theologically, this is at the center as well of even the old covenant. 
So, so that's why it's at the center. The Day of Atonement shows us that when God's place is among God's unclean people, uh, purification is needed as well as forgiveness. This is only going to come through sacrifice that's without blemish and a bearing away of sin. And even the most set-apart person, if there is any sin or uncleanness in his life, which there is in every single human being, cannot just enter the Holy of Holies. There has to be atonement even for that high priest. So that's what we're seeing, right? Okay, now Hebrews 9. We, we see that thematically then, this also ties to the central element of the new covenant and the gospel. Okay, so I'm making this connection. This is the center of the old covenant. It ties thematically to the center of the new covenant. Hebrews 9, and uh, look at verse 1 through 3, refers to the, the tabernacle. Now even the first covenant, so the old covenant, had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which with the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, it is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. So we've already seen that, right? Verses 6 through 8. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. So we've already read about those in Leviticus 1 through 7. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which, uh, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Now, if you're wondering what unintentional sins is, uh, uh, the section where we talked through chapters 1 through 7, I dealt with that. So if you weren't here for that, go back and listen to that Sunday school session, uh, chapters 1 through 7 of Leviticus. Verse 8. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. So that's the Old Covenant. So even with the Old Covenant, there's, there's got to be more to come. You see that, right? The priest can only go in once a year and the holy veil was not open. Look at verses 11 through 14. We're going to see what Jesus does, the new covenant. But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. So the tabernacle pointed to the heavenly throne room. That's the point. Jesus enters not the physical tent. He enters the real tent, the spiritual tent in the heavenly places the real throne room of God the Father. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Isn't that amazing? Eternal redemption. There was a save the date for them because that work that was done had to be done every year. Jesus enters once for all and we have eternal redemption. Eternal being bought back or, or even you could say atoned for, right? I mean, different word, but atonement is to bring redemption and reconciliation. That's the point. So he secures eternal redemption. For if the blood of, this is verse 13, if the blood of bulls and goats, or goats and bulls, and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Right? We are living sacrifices now. We don't bring animals and sacrifice them. We offer ourselves as living sacrifices because Jesus has paid it all. And so we're like that burnt offering that everything belongs to you, Lord. I'm living out 
something of what this burnt offering pictured. He brings it by his own blood. He only has to do it once for all. Uh, he secures eternal redemption. Uh, so, um, well, let me, let me keep reading. So, uh, tw- verses 21 through 26. And in the same way, he's uh, sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. This is talking about the Old Covenant again. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, verse 23, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Amen. Hallelujah. Right? Jesus enters, gives himself as the perfect sacrifice. So Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. He is the perfect high priest. He did not have to bring a sacrifice for his own sins. He had no sins. He did not bring a bull or goat. He brought himself. And he did not enter the tabernacle made with hands. He entered the heavenly tabernacle, the heavenly palace of God and poured out his blood in the heavenlies so that we could enter and have eternal redemption and not pollute the place and not ruin the place and not die eternally. So this is what Jesus does. So, hey, Roman Catholicism, mass, re-sacrificing Christ over and over again, absolutely not. Once for all, he did it. One sacrifice. He doesn't have to keep doing it over and over again. So application, Hebrews 10, and I'm not, gonna, I'm not really going to spend a ton of time on this. Uh, if you want more time on this, go listen to, is it last week's sermon? I'm, I'm like confused in time. Did you preach this last week? Yeah, so it's that recent. So go, go listen to the sermon from last week if you missed that. But I mean, this is, this is where all this is going. So this really, I mean, this fits really well with, with the sermon last week. Chapter 10, verses 19 through 22. So in light of all this, um, well, let me back up. The first thing is, if you're not trusting in Christ alone, I mean, just because you're here on a Sunday morning for Sunday school, as dedicated as you are, and I appreciate that, that doesn't necessarily mean you're a Christian. Are you trusting in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins? Are you trying to like work it out and bring your own sacrifices to make yourself acceptable to God? That is an offense to God. He made the once for all sacrifice. Our job is to humble ourselves and receive that. Right? Agree with God about our sins. Agree with God about the sacrifice that Christ made. But the, the call really then is, is verses 19 through 22 of chapter 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. You guys see the imagery here? The curtain stood in the way. The cherubim were standing there saying, do not enter. Jesus opens up the curtain, the curtain is ultimately his body, sacrificed for us, torn open for us. The blood that's sprinkled on that curtain and on that holy mercy seat is his blood. So that is through his flesh, verse 21. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, so we have the great best high priest we could have, because this is true, 
because the sacrifice is perfect, because the high priest is perfect, verse 22, let us draw near with true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So we have confidence to enter before God. I mean, think about Aaron. I mean, it's hard. You, you want to be careful not to psychologize people in the Bible because we don't know what they're thinking. But I'm thinking if I'm Aaron, my sons were just struck dead basically the same day that he's being told how he can now try to enter before the Holy of Holies. Right? Now, there's, there's some level of confidence because God has said, this is what you do and you do this, you live. But as a sinful person, I mean, you've got to still be thinking, are you sure? I mean, can I send someone else? Right? See what happens? Um, maybe we'll just send the goat in there alive and see what happens, right? No, he, so he, he does, how much more confidence do we have to enter before God? We can go to God in prayer. That's one way we draw near to him, right? We can cry out to him for help. We, we can know that he's not going to cast us away because of our sin. We can still draw near to him and confess because 1 John 1, 9 says he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Again, that word just is so confusing if you don't understand what's going on here. Justice means I should die. Justice means I should be punished. I've done what's wrong. How is he just to forgive me my sins? How can I go to God with confidence and assurance when I've sinned? He's just because the payment has been made. The sacrifice has been accepted. If he was to punish you, it would be double jeopardy. He's not going to punish you. You can draw near with assurance. And our, our consciences are, are sprinkled clean. And so the other call is, man, we draw forward with confidence and we want to live in a way that shows God is our confidence. We, we, we do want to live a holy life. This doesn't mean don't live a holy life. But it totally transforms an um, ungodly way of looking at it, a self-righteous way of looking at it. Right? Holiness is all about, I want to be near God. He's holy, and I want to look like him. Jesus paid it all, so I'm going to draw near and ask him, God, make me more holy. God, forgive me of my sin. God, empower me to be a living sacrifice. So we have confidence. There's no more curtain saying only the high priest, only once a year. Jesus' flesh was torn open. There's no longer a sprinkling of blood on these earthly things because we have been sprinkled by the blood of Jesus. There are no longer washings because we've been washed by the pure blood of Christ. We have been cleansed by his spirit applying his work to us. We'll end with this um, so we can enter God's presence. Gordon Wenham writes this, Christ on the cross achieved what the high priest of the old covenant had attempted to do on the day of atonement. The effectiveness of his atonement was demonstrated by the veil of the temple being rent in two. For Hebrews, the tearing of the veil corresponds to the tearing of Christ's flesh. Now all believers have the right to enter into the presence of God. Amen. Hallelujah. Right? Let me pray. Father, we are so grateful for what you've done, what your son has accomplished. Um, God, that you designed this, um, that in your holiness, you did not, um, though you could have, you did not just uh, sentence us to eternal hell like that scapegoat. Instead, you chose to have your son and he willingly came to bear our sin away on his own back outside the camp. Um, to have his flesh torn, his blood poured out so that we might be covered and atoned for. And so God, we are eternally grateful for the eternal redemption you've given us. God, so often we forget that and when we do, we don't live in light of it. So we pray, would you keep this on the forefront of our minds? Would you cause us to be um, full of joy, full of thanksgiving? And may that push out the desires for sin. May it increase our joy in you. May it cause us to pursue a heavenly mindedness and a faithful living in all that we do. That whether we eat, drink, whatever we do, we may do it all to your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.